welcome to Four Quarter Lives, a podcast exploring the profound impact of longer, healthier, and more engaged lives, not only for ourselves and our couples, but also for companies and countries. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and on this week's Four Quarter Lives, I talk with AARP's Director of Thought Leadership Financial Resilience, Julie Miller. Julie has put a spotlight on the economic impact of women in Q3 through two seminal reports, Unleashing the Economic Power of Older Women and How Women 50 Plus Are Driving the Global Economy. Prior to joining AARP, Dr. Miller spent a decade as a researcher at MIT's Age Lab. As a Harvard University Rappaport Public Policy Fellow, Dr. Miller supported the Massachusetts Executive Office of Elder Affairs in its administration of the nation's first statewide governor's council to address aging. Now, she's focusing on unleashing the power and potential of older women. So, Julie Miller, welcome to Four Quarter Lives. Thank you so much for having me, Aviva. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Now, you've done some amazing reports with AARP that I would love to inform our listeners to. And it's all about focusing on women 50 plus. Now, women are the majority of the world's first 1 billion older adults 60 plus, And they're going to be the majority of the second billion coming along and due by 2050. So your report is strategically timed. And it's called How Women 50 Plus Are Driving the Global Longevity Economy. So here you're focusing on several areas in which women 50 plus make particularly notable contributions to what you're referring to as the GLE or the Global Longevity Economy. So what is that and how are we contributing? The Global Longevity Economy is comprised of the vast economic impact of people ages 50 and older within and across nations that drive increases in gross domestic product, GDP, job creation, and income generation. We know, for instance, that in 2020, people age 50 and older contributed about $45 trillion to global GDP. By 2050, we expect that their contributions will more than double to $118 trillion. According to this report that you mentioned, Aviva, the global 50-plus population is making significant and impressively increasing contributions to economies. And I would say that all of the global longevity economy work, including the work I'm really excited to talk about today that spotlights women, contributes to how we can think about aging in a new and different way. Yes, because that's definitely not the frame that we currently have to look at these older populations as sort of a major economic contributor. If anything, probably the worry is the contrary. So women have these three different segments that you're looking at. You're looking at women as employees who are salaried in paid work. You're looking at the huge number of women who are carers, who are in unpaid caregiving. They I was a bit shocked at this number that they are 76% of caregiving. And you're also looking at women as consumers, customers with huge amounts of purchasing power up to what you've called 64% of consumer purchasing decisions. This kind of data is really useful in reframing a little bit the debate. How popular is this line? Is it being heard and is it understood? 
That's a really great question. Back to this idea really of a, of a paradigm shift in aging, and you continue to be such an important force in this paradigm shift, Aviva, including with your podcast. I would say that in general, this message around the global longevity economy, and that is the population of adults age 50 and older as contributors to economic success, rather than as folks who detract from economic success, in general, has been really welcomed with open arms. If we look at organizational success, if we look at the success of economies as a whole, who can argue with the idea that as we live longer, there are plenty of opportunities that with the right attention and efforts that we can be better seizing so that people of all ages can be contributing to strong economies. I do think that is where some of our message and messages around the global longevity economy have been really well received. So maybe if we can just take a slice at each of those categories, employees, carers, and customers, because on the employee front, I keep hearing a lot of other reports on gendered ageism, the struggle for women to stay in work, the push from the corporate world, particularly to nudge them out. What do you see in that space? Is it changing? We have good news and we have bad news. And that overlap is where there is such important work to be done and there are truths to be reconciled, right? So if we look at some of the good news, we can look at the fact that in the United States, companies owned by women of all ages contribute almost $3 trillion to the nation's economy and are responsible for 23 million jobs. In developing countries, we know, and we talk about this in the report, that there are 8 to 10 million small and medium enterprises with at least one female owner. If we look over time, that's tremendous progress that has been made in many ways. There's more to the story, however, and we'll talk about that. If we look at caregiving, we know that women age 50 plus provide domestic labor, elder care, and child care, including almost 6 million grandchildren in the United States. Through their work, the vast majority of which is unpaid in a family caregiving context, we know that women age 50 plus are powering our economies so that their loved ones can be working. So again, I would say tremendous progress to be made in the form of contributions that women age 50 plus. Can I just go back one step on the, so I hear that women are you know, huge entrepreneurs. I'm still just curious, are they entrepreneurs because they're leaving the corporate world because they're getting kicked out of it? Is that the alternative to being able to stay in paid employment? That's where the story gets more complicated. Absolutely. We know that, including from AARP research, that plenty of women age 50 plus who start business businesses are doing so because, as you mentioned, some of their opportunities that we would all want women age 50 plus to have may be stymied for a variety of reasons. And so there is, I think we can look at business generation by choice and also by, by a sense of constrained choices as well. And that's important to think about. So with that said, you know, again, I think the report really does a good job of focusing on contributions of women age 50 plus through paid work, through unpaid caregiving, and through spending. So Aviva, you mentioned this idea of women driving about 64% of consumer purchases around the world. And that number projected to only grow higher, um, about 66% of America's wealth will be controlled, or I'm sorry, about 66% of uh, discretionary spending in the future will be controlled by, by women. Really exciting, right? And Joe Coughlin at the Age Lab talks about 
the idea of the future being female and women being the chief consumption officers in households, making decisions not just for themselves, but oftentimes for spouses, for aging parents or loved ones, and for children or grandchildren. And if we think about women as powerful decision makers at, at different points in the lifespan, where their spending comes in is a really important thing to think about. And I'm struck a little bit because I've been studying this gender stuff for like 20 years and we've been saying that women make the majority of consumer purchasing decisions for a long time, right? I actually think those numbers might be going down slightly in terms of just how much they're making. Is that influencing the way companies market and sell to this segment? I'm still not seeing that much of a shift in the sort of youthism of advertising and product development? Are companies waking up or adjusting to this group and their purchasing power? Or are we still slightly invisible to the young men who seem to be driving a lot of the ads still? A lot of the learning and the privilege that I was able to enjoy working at the MIT Age Lab for about 10 years was in getting to work with companies who were aspiring for this idea of transcendent design, including for older women consumers and and women consumers as they age. So much of what I had an opportunity to think about, learn about, talk about through my work at the Age Lab was about how to move beyond the quote, big, boring, beige products that are often designed, this kind of more medically oriented product, how to think about what people of all ages and all different situations would really want to have, would want to get their hands on. So I will say, just as anecdata, I had lots of opportunities to learn what some of those products were, how folks in different industries, whether it was retail, design, tech, housing, transportation, financial services, how folks were thinking about the idea of design differently. We have a lot of work to do. Though. And I would say particularly as we think about women age 50 plus acknowledging in general longer lifespans than men, there is tremendous opportunity to be marketing to women as they age in different ways and to be thinking really critically about not just what do women need, but what do they want? Absolutely. And I can't resist also just questioning one last sort of balance issue. It, it's this, this, these numbers on caregiving that are so high and, and they also sound a little immobile over time. I mean, don't men have parents? Why is it that women are the majority caregivers of their elderly parents? Is, and is that gender balancing at all? Is that moving? I so appreciate that AARP has done work, has, has looked at caregiving among men and caregiving among millennials, I think the more that we can do to draw attention to the fact that yes, women, particularly women at midlife and beyond, often get attention for the caregiving that they do and they need to. And also there's so much more to the story. And I believe that the more people feel represented in the data that they see, in the research that they consume, in the news that all of us are exposed to, the more we as a society can be talking about these issues and figuring out how to address them better. So I will, I will say I'm, I'm grateful for the work that I know AARP has done to expand the conversation. 
around caregiving. And I personally am heartened by what feels like a good amount of information that I continue to see around changing distributions of household labor. And certainly while those figures have, as you mentioned, tended to be stubborn, I like to think that we have greener pastures ahead as we continue to think about providing childcare and care for aging loved ones and loved ones with disabilities in different ways. And also how employers come into the picture when we think about our often dueling roles as workers and as people who go to work. As an international podcast, you know that we look at the U.S. rather as uh, the, the counter role model on a lot of these care issues and that parental leave seems to be a really hard child care and elder care seems to be rare and expensive. What do you think we can do to support all these women who are caring, working and buying to contribute more and more comfortably to the global longevity economy? What's your hit list of top priorities? Wow. So I've got a long list. Let me think about what would go on the short list. For one, I would say we need to acknowledge the long tail of the pandemic. We know that leading up to the pandemic, women age 55 plus represented one of the fastest growing demographic groups in the U.S. to work. And we are just now seeing those pre-pandemic rates of labor participation among older women coming back. We are just now seeing that. We have every reason to believe in the future that older women will represent an increasing share of the labor market. But the pandemic has, among the many ways in which it has disrupted so many of our lives, I would say our abilities to work, our abilities to juggle different responsibilities, these are some of the many things that have changed. And so one thing that we can think about as we continue to recover from the pandemic is how can we conceptualize work in different ways so that the tent is bigger and broader for more women who want or need to work can do that successfully. That would be one thing I would say. Can I just dig into that a bit? What do you what do you mean? So conceptualize work differently? Is this are we talking flex, work from home, work differently? over time? All of the above. And I think about work that one of my mentors, Marcy Pitt-Katsufis, who's been at Boston College for a long time, what she early on has, has introduced me to the concept of retirement not necessarily needing to happen in, in this traditional, boom, here's my retirement party. And okay, great. Now I'm waking up to a, potentially an entirely different life and set of daily activities and a, and a sense of purpose and identity, but instead that retirement, if someone wants wants to retire, if someone chooses to retire, et cetera, that that can, that can be different for different people. And so I would, yeah, I would say there are so many different ways in which also hopefully we can utilize some of the learnings from the pandemic to make work more accessible for more people as they age. Absolutely. We have an opportunity to address also the harmful impacts of age and and gender discrimination across all aspects of society, because we know that addressing ageism and sexism at work is hugely important so that women can get the jobs that they want and need over time and that they can maintain those jobs and, and change jobs as they wish for professional development, for increased earnings, really that the piece around age and gender discrimination, there is no way 
in my mind, to be making the progress that we need to make for older women, whether they are working or not, if we don't really understand how to address discrimination in its different forms. I want to make a plug for several AARP initiatives that folks can learn about as a way to invest in age and gender diverse workforces. For instance, through AARP's Living, Learning, and Earning Longer Collaborative, we have upwards of 100 companies now around the world who say, we believe, we know that having diverse workforces, including age-diverse workforces, can be an asset to the work that we do and an asset to our bottom line. And so I would recommend learning about AARP's LLEL as well as the Employer Pledge Program so that more employers can really understand that they are in good company and that there's a lot to be learned about how to really maximize age diversity at work. Those are, I would say, just a few of the implications, as it were. What can we be doing better? What do we need to think about? And if you check out the report, if you check out a blog, a companion blog post that I wrote about the report that really gets at some of the gray space that you mentioned, Aviva, with we've made a lot of progress. We know we've made a lot of progress. And also, there's a lot to be done. So I would say to check those things out if anyone's interested to learn more. Cool. And we'll add those links to the show notes as well. And I'm just so struck by what I see emerging as this, you know, Q3 in these longer lives that strike me as potentially women's most impactful career decades if we get the kind of opportunity equality that you're discussing. Would you agree with that? Is that potentially the best time of our lives? I like to think as someone who personally is in Q2, Right now, I like to think that in the future, it will even more so, Q3 will even more so, if not the most impactful career decade, just as impactful as Q1, Q2. I think about this idea of emerging adulthood uh, that uh, Jeffrey Arnett talks about generally between the ages of 17 and 22 or so as a time that emerging adults often have powerful shifts in their sense of identity and in their worldviews. When I think about Q3, and I think about the also really powerful shifts in terms of sense of identity, sense of purpose, sense of what's next, I would like to see just as much attention paid there for women who are working and for women who are not for us to think more creatively about what do we want the rest of our lives to look like? What do we need the rest of our lives to look like? So I would say it's a mixed bag, honestly. I think that if we look in the U.S. context, a lot of progress has been made over the years, and there's so much more to be had. Uh, Erickson talks about the idea of generativity versus stagnation and the idea of integrity versus despair. My brain is there often, I think, at different stages of life, including Q3. What can lead to a sense of generativity and creativity at work versus this idea that we are stagnating? How can we help people as they age feel a sense of integrity? And we know, of course, if we look at disparities in the United States and around the world, we, there are clear lines in which people have more access to think about these things like generativity and integrity, right? And so, as always, a really important question is how can we make sure that everyone 
is able to live and thrive, not just longer, but better. Amen. You spent, as you mentioned, a decade before you joined ARP at MIT at the Age Lab with Joe Coughlin, who wrote a book, The Longevity Economy. What would you say are three things you've taken away or that that decade gifted you, inspired you on addressing this issue of building a context of generativity in Q3? My background, my training is in gerontological social work, and I've always been so, so drawn to working with older adults in particular. One thing that my time at the Age Lab really gifted me was this, now I see it as a pretty fundamental idea, I don't know that I did before, that aging is not a insert fill-in-the-blank number plus here experience. Aging is a cumulative experience. And so... The idea of the life course perspective and in thinking about services, products, policies, how we develop any of these, this is so important to think about, not just as a, again, insert number here imperative, but as a lifelong one. Another big takeaway from, from my time at the Age Lab, for me personally, was the importance of a good question. As a social worker, as someone who was always really interested And this idea of sitting down with someone to understand their life, their history, their sense of reality, their view of the world. I have always loved and really valued open-ended questions and being curious. I would say my time at the Age Lab helped me to get more specific in understanding whether you are setting out on a new research project and you need to come up with your overall research question that's guiding where you are going and what you want to learn, or whether it's splitting hairs over a survey question, where if you ask the word how instead of what, you will get entirely different answers, or whether it's in a focus group, in-person or virtual, and you have strangers sitting in front of you and you're asking them on some level to bear their soul on some level around often sensitive topics, the importance of that invitational question and you know as a storyteller and as a story solicitor is so so important and that's something that was a big takeaway for me and then i would say my my final takeaway from my time at the age lab was really being able to luxuriate in many ways in a culture of very mit play experimentation exploration and as joe coughlin the founder and director of the age lab talks about let's break something right? Like this idea of let's break something, let's do something different. Let's figure out some new approaches, different solutions. Let's shake things up a little bit. And so I'd say those are, those are a few of the takeaways for me from my decade at the age job. It sounds about right. It's um, listening is a rare talent these days. We, We can often find, especially towards the older. So I think that's a very powerful takeaway. Thank you. And you've actually made a documentary film that I'm curious about. It's called Vibrant Aging. What was it about? How did it come about? And where can we watch it? Ah, so I know Vibrant Aging. There are actually two documentary films at this point. They are floating around online, I'm sure, in different in different pockets of the internet. And I know that I have them probably saved on physical DVDs at this point, which is so funny how rapidly our technology ages itself that now I don't actually have a way to on these DVDs play <laughs> play the documentaries myself. 
the idea of the vibrant aging films really for me at the point where I was in my master's in social work program was an attempt to understand if we think beyond some of the other many, many different terms that float around healthy aging, graceful aging, positive aging, you know, successful aging, what would that next level look like? What would it mean to live not just well as someone ages, but to really be feeling that one is living their best life? And what does that mean for different people? And so some of those questions are where the vibrant aging films came from. They were my way in to understanding from a storytelling framework, what are some of those factors that if you ask 10 different people, and these were folks who were living in their communities, some folks who were unhoused temporarily or for longer term, what were some of those factors that people say makes can make aging a vibrant experience? So those were a couple of opportunities for me to bring together some of those listening opportunities, as we just talked about, with, I think, the real privilege of having a camera in that all of a sudden, life can be art, or life can really feel like art, both for the listener and for the storyteller. Wonderful. Sounds great. And again, if there are links, we'll put them in the show notes and see if we can catch that. It sounds inspiring. And so I'm curious how it inspired you. You're somebody in Q2 studying the second half of life and interacting with Q3 and Q4 all the time. What did you take away for your own aging? What are the, what are the lessons for you in all this? Or what would you like to do with the second half of your life? This is something I think about a lot. One of my grandfathers talked about the goal he always had for his life, and that was social significance. And for me, I think a lot about legacy and in that context, social significance, and what does that mean? And so if I think about any of the many, many people that I have been so privileged to work with over time, including folks well into their 80s, 90s, even early 100s, I think a lot about legacy and what that, yeah, what that can look like. And then also a big takeaway for me that as I think forward to my own life in the future, the only thing that I know we can all plan on is the unexpected for better and for worse. And that again, is something that I tend to think about a lot. Be ready for change. Absolutely. Be ready for change. And of course we can all say it, but how to figure out today and in this moment, how to make the most of the day and of the time. That's a lovely note on which to end, but I'm just going to ask you to conclude with what, what advice might you give to two groups? One, the individual listeners about their own aging. Anything else we should know? Be ready for change. Be mindful of legacy. Anything else you would add? Another thing I would say, and this is for me speaking, speaking again in Q2, speaking particularly to my fellow millennials, although, although not only, is really basic, right? Actually, not that basic. And that is, let's talk about aging in a new way. The number of people over time who, as we've been talking, oh, what do you do? What do you do? Oh, I work in aging. What do you do? The number of people who tend to come back and say, oh, it seems so depressing. Let's flip that script. And, and we are doing it together. We are doing this in great company as well. 
But let's figure out a new narrative so that we can all not just be looking forward to longer, better lives, but that we are living into them right now. Aging is not inherently a bad thing. Aging is a challenging thing. Aging can be a wonderful, vibrant thing, and it can be so many things. But my one piece of advice that I want to share, and really my ask, is that we together think about the many strengths that people bring to families and communities and organizations and economies in new and different ways as they age. I think that is a beautiful note on which to end, to be really mindful of what you're giving and taking in equal measure. So Julie Miller, thank you so much for your contribution and all this work on putting a spotlight on just how powerfully and potentially impactful women over 50 can be. Thank you. Aviva, thank you. Really appreciate it. For more thinking about the impact of our four-quarter lives, you can read my column at Forbes and subscribe to my Elderberries newsletter on Substack. Let's design lives that aren't just longer, but better. <laughs>